Grace and peace be with you this day and always. Good morning. My name is Sam Coker. My pronouns are he, him, his, and I'm one of the student pastors working at Urban Village Church this year. And it is my joy and privilege today to welcome you with a happy new year in a manner of speaking. Obviously, we're not quite at January 1st, 2021 just yet, but today is the first Sunday of Advent, and Advent is the beginning of the Christian liturgical year. We've been spending the past few months in what is sometimes called ordinary time, and that mostly just means that there haven't been any major Christian holidays for a while, the last one being Pentecost. But now we've come to the season of Advent. Most of the world, and in fact even a good portion of the Christian world, doesn't celebrate or recognize Advent as its own distinct season. But for us, this is a time of devotion, preparation, and yes, the family wreaths and the candle sets. The verses of scripture that we heard this morning come to us from the book of Isaiah. Now, Isaiah is a complex work of literature. It's one of the longest books in the Old Testament, and it's full of these big proclamations of judgment, has these rich passages of poetry, and it also has messages of hope. The prophet Isaiah anticipates the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and the exile of the people of Israel to Babylon. But the book also tells of hope for a new Jerusalem, and that this redemption of God's people will be brought about by a servant king, a Messiah. And because Isaiah goes into detail about this messianic expectation, Christians have traditionally read Isaiah as a part of the preparation for the birth of Jesus Christ, hence why Isaiah is such a classic Advent text. The specific passages that were read aloud this morning come from the part of Isaiah that is sometimes referred to as Second Isaiah. Biblical scholars typically will divide Isaiah into three distinct sections. First Isaiah takes up chapters 1 through 39. Second Isaiah takes up chapters 40 through 55. And third Isaiah is 56 through 66. So the first passage that we read is the beginning of chapter 40. That is the beginning of 2nd Isaiah. And this is where the book takes a really significant turn. In 1st Isaiah, the prophet is warning the leaders of God's the leaders of Israel of God's impending judgment by way of the Assyrian and later Babylonian kingdoms. He's preaching these messages of judgment to kings Ahaz and Hezekiah. But in 2nd Isaiah, the voice of the book starts to speak to an audience that is already living the Babylonian exile. So when we read this message of comfort, O comfort, from God, and that Israel has served her term and that her penalty has been paid, we're now seeing a message of consolation in a time of great strife for God's people. We even get that description of the highway that will be made for God. And it reads like the earthly terrain itself is shifting. It's flattening to make way for God's glory. The audience of this passage is awaiting a revelation of God. But that revelation seems to be coming by way of an unexpected instrument. The Persian king Cyrus, mentioned at the beginning of chapter 45. 
Cyrus is going to be the one who makes known the presence of God and will bring about Israel's salvation. And there's a lot of striking, even violent imagery that's used here to describe what Cyrus is going to do. The leveling of mountains, the destruction of doors of bronze, bars of iron are going to be cut through. Interestingly, Cyrus is the only non-Israelite person in the whole Old Testament to be referred to as God's anointed. And sometimes we'll read that as a bit of a turn, that God and God's people is now going to be a relationship with all people that will be seen and come to fruition in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Cyrus doesn't actually seem to be all that aware that God is behind his rule and his success. It says over and over that Cyrus does not actually know God. And yet, God is going to make God's self known in this very unexpected way. The phrase from this passage that I want to turn our attention to is verse 3. I will give you the treasures of darkness and riches hidden in secret places so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. That is an astounding thing to read. I will give you treasures of darkness. Is God suggesting here that darkness is a gift? That darkness is part of the plan? Well, isn't darkness bad? I mean, at least we are trained to think that darkness is bad. There are some passages elsewhere in Scripture that do seem to imply and reinforce this idea that darkness is bad. In the beginning, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep. And it isn't until God creates light that anything is called good. So isn't the light good? Isn't the light desirable? The darkness. Darkness sounds frightening, chaotic, uncertain. Darkness begets uncertainty, whereas light begets order, or so we are led to think. We're trained in our culture to think of light and dark as a very strict dichotomy. Light is good, pure, warm. Light is synonymous with life. But darkness is bad. Darkness is evil. It's cold. Darkness is synonymous with death. And even other parts of scripture, the Bible is reinforcing that dichotomy. In the opening to the Gospel of John, he talks about how the light of life shined in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. That sounds an awful lot like God is the light and darkness is the enemy of God. We're so used to thinking of darkness as emblematic of the absence of God or the absence of godliness. But how easily... This binary way of thinking seeps into the way that we think about people in our lives. How easily one moves from this dichotomy of light, good, dark, bad, toward a hatred, a denigration of black bodies. Because blackness and darkness have long been thought to be undesirable. This way of viewing darkness not only limits our creativities and imaginations, not to mention God's omnipotence, but it feeds into systems of oppression and death that privilege those with light skin tones at the expense of all others. So we need something else. And God says here at the end of that passage, 
I form light and create darkness. Isaiah is claiming that the formless void of Genesis 1, the darkness that covered the face of the waters, was not a godless chaos that needed to be tamed, but it was itself part of creation. If that is true, then darkness is not something to be feared. In fact, it may even be something to be celebrated alongside all other parts of God's holy created order. To say that God will give treasures of darkness is to say that God has darkness as divine. Darkness is holy. Darkness is good because God created the darkness. We have little reason to fear it if God is there as well, if dark is also part of God's good creation. Isaiah suggests that light and darkness are not, as some might think, an eternal battle of good against evil, but rather together they form the totality of our lives on earth. Without darkness, there are no cycles. There are no rhythms. There are no changes to life. This passage affirms that God is in the darkness too. There are other examples we can find in scripture of God appearing to be in or like darkness. In the book of Exodus, at the moment that the Israelites enter the wilderness of Sinai, they are under the blanket cover of a dark new moon sky, presumably illumined only by stars. And when God announces that God is going to appear, God appears as a dense cloud surrounded by thunder and lightning. And in the Psalms, the psalmist proclaims that the whole earth rejoices for the Lord. The Lord is surrounded even by thick clouds and darkness. And later, in Psalm 139, we read that the presence of God is all-encompassing, that both light and dark are the domain of the Creator. In reclaiming darkness as an essential component of God's creation, we begin to reorganize the ways that we have cast our world and its people into false, dehumanizing binaries to place darkness as the necessary and good antithesis to light is to reveal that all of god's creation exists as one beautiful whole created design and as the seasons change into long dark and bitter cold so too will they one day turn to the brightness of the day and the warmth of the sun and back again and again always god is found in the light but God is found in the darkness, too. This season marks not only a transition into the season of Advent and the coming days of winter. For many, this is the beginning of bouts of increased depression and loneliness. With limited amounts of sunlight, a lot of folks around this time experience seasonal affective disorder. And even for those who don't, we are deprived Many of us are deprived of the critical physical connection with loved ones that form so much of our lives. We recognize that this winter in particular brings unique challenges to what is already a trying time for many. Darkness seems anything but inviting. But in this season of waiting, the prophet Isaiah reminds us that God is still with us. Advent is a time of consolation, 
of expectation for the wondrous glory of God who will soon be born in a lowly manger. I challenge you this Advent season to think about holy darkness, darkness as divine. In the words of the Old Testament scholar, the Reverend Dr. Will Gaffney, darkness is not evil, but a realm of mystery and imagination. The day is constant, but the night is creative. The stars dance, the moon dreams, the comets write poetry of fire. Without the night, there is no dawn or twilight, no moments of sacred ambiguity, no subtle changes of perception, no promises kept or just made, a holy pledge of healing or of hope. No, please, we need the night in heaven. We need that glorious darkness, that obscure beauty, drifting on wedding gown clouds of white across an obsidian sky. Friends, God has not left us. Within the dark that surrounds us this season, we may yet find our peace, our consolation, our hope, dare I say, even treasures. May it be so this day. Amen.